Welcome to Politics Plus, conversations about American politics, economics, history, and culture. I'm your host, Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Mona Charon, one of the most prominent conservative voices in the United States. She writes a syndicated column that appears in more than 200 newspapers, is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and is the author of the books Useful Idiots, Do-Gooders, and the recently released Sex Matters, How Modern Feminism Lost Touch with Science, Love, and Common Sense. Mona Charon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You know, you open the book with with a sort of a, a very bold sentence, feminism has triumphed. And immediately I'm thinking, well, I bet you there are plenty of people who would say in a society where women still earn considerably less than men do, where women make up only around 20 percent of Congress and about 5 percent of Fortune 500 CEOs and where sexual harassment is still endemic in many workplaces, that feminism hasn't even come close to triumphing. So I, I wonder what your response to that would be. Sure. Well, in um, Sex Matters, I address all of those issues. Um, let's start with the fact that um, there are fewer than 20% of women in Congress and 5% in the Fortune 500 CEOs. I talk about this a lot in my chapter called Having It All, where I say, look, you have to take into account that women make free choices, that they know exactly what they're doing. And they, when they choose not to, say, run for office or go for that higher paying job or, or get on the track to be the CEO, it's because they're balancing their professional and their personal lives. And for most women, uh, spending a significant amount of their childbearing years with their children is a high priority. And they're only 24 hours in a day. And many, many women, I would, the majority, based on the data that I've collected in Sex Matters, uh, the majority make those trade-offs willingly. Uh, they understand that when they spend more time with their children, they're going to um, have less of an opportunity to be the CEO. But in terms of the pay gap between men and women, there's there's broad agreement now in the literature that um, this is the consequence of women cutting back on their work hours uh, and uh, when their children uh, come come along. So if you look at and compare young men and young women at the same education levels and so forth and skills um, at the beginnings of their careers, you find there's no pay gap. It only begins to appear when women start to cut back when they have children. And um, that is kind of a natural thing. It doesn't mean that it's discrimination. It just means people are making free choices. So it, it, in a sense, it's not necessarily to say that there isn't discrimination, but what you're arguing is that we need to be more careful about how we, how we parse this data and what we look at. Sure. Look, I, uh, is there still discrimination against women? Sure. Is there still sexism in the world? Of course there is. But it's a matter of, of um, balance and recognizing that not all of the disparities that we see are attributable to those factors. They're also attributable to people making decisions about how they want their lives to unfold. Right. It, maybe it would be, I guess, helpful to talk a little bit about what we mean by uh, feminism, because your book is all about sort of the, the wrong path that you would argue that modern feminism has taken. And uh, for me, when I what I think about when I think about feminism is uh, supporting equal rights, supporting opportunities for women. And by that definition, I consider myself a feminist. So I'm wondering how that fits with your definition of feminism. Right. So by your definition of feminism, I'm a feminist, too. Um, I believe in the full moral, philosophical, political, uh, and every other kind of equality between the sexes. Um, what I don't believe um, is that the sexes are identical and that there are no important differences. That it tends to be and has been over the last several decades one of the tenets of feminism that has that has uh, alienated me. I don't I don't buy that there are no differences except those that are socially constructed. I think there are some basic biological differences that have a huge impact on our lives, our choices, our needs um, and our desires. And I, I also um, 
would stress that feminism took two serious wrong turns back in the 1970s that, again, were not just about uh, the political and social and uh, economic equality of women, but were something else. One was their total um, embrace of abortion as a feminist value, which many of us are offended by, and we think that it undermines one of the most uh, important values and uh, morals of uh, human life. That is the attachment between mothers and babies. And um, uh, those of us who are pro-life are offended that feminism made abortion such a key uh, feature of their uh, philosophy. And the other was the embrace of the sexual revolution. Uh, to go hand in hand, of course, to some extent. But um, I, I don't think that you needed to endorse, um, you know, d- destroying the traditional nuclear family, uh, destroying all of the uh, the guideposts of, and rules about sexual behavior uh, that were part of the sexual revolution um, in order to advance women's interests. In fact, I would argue, embracing the sexual revolution turned out to be a very bad deal for women. Yeah, so I, those are the things. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely, I definitely want to uh, ask you a few more things uh, about that. But before we do, I, I also wanted to point out that you make what I think is a really important distinction early on in the book when you talk about the difference between, uh, I guess you could say, more old school feminism, which dates back hundreds of years. And uh, mm-hmm. isn't it called second wave, the second wave feminists of the 60s and 70s? And this is what you mean by modern feminism, right? The second wave. That's that's exactly right. Okay. The, the feminism that I'm criticizing is from the 60s and 70s and since. Um, the, um, the old fashioned feminism that I praise um, is the uh, the first wave usually called uh, the suffragists um, and uh, and other uh, campaigners for uh, human rights of women that, you know, you could cite Mary Wollstonecraft or um, John Stuart Mill, many others. And uh, I, I'm certainly with them. Women are the full equals of men in intellect, in, in rights, uh, and of course, uh, in, uh, in, in, spirit, in a spiritual sense. In the book, I, I seem to recall there, there's a phrase that sticks in my mind. I think it's from you, where you, you write that uh, equality doesn't mean sameness. And I'm wondering if that's one of the big distinctions between the, uh, the, the first wave of feminists and the second wave. Yeah, it really is. Um, the first wave feminists were fine with um, recognizing that men and women were different. They just because they understood that you don't have to be identical to have full human rights. I mean, you know, that's that's not necessary. You don't have to make that leap. Um, And in fact, I actually argue that feminists, again, they made mistakes in terms of um, trying to make women into men, trying to say that women were just like men because they were you know, eager to have all of the rights of men as they saw it and all the privileges. And so they, they thought they needed to frame it as we're just alike, but we're, we're not. Um, men are more aggressive. They have a lot stronger sex drive. Uh, they're more promiscuous by nature than women, I would argue. Um, and uh, this, these are all important uh, differences that, that people have to be honest about. And I, I also think people don't need to be afraid of them. You know, we don't need to be afraid to acknowledge that there are differences um, because out of fear that people will then say that one is inferior and the other is superior. We're not inferior or superior. We're just different. Right. So, I mean, and in the book, you devote a lot of time to looking at the, the scientific research on these differences. And so I guess what I was wondering is, is there any sort of common reaction to, to when modern feminists see this? I mean, do they do they deny this research? It just seems to me to be difficult to deny a lot of these pretty straightforward, it seems to me, biological differences. So a number of the women that I quote in the book, a number of the scientists that I quote in the book about the the science of sex differences are women scientists. So I'm sure that many of them, if you ask, would say, sure, they think of themselves as feminists. Maybe I would suspect maybe they think of themselves as the old fashioned kind of feminist who believes in equal rights, um, but um, an equal treatment. 
but um, but they would would not deny. In fact, they are in the business of, of proving that uh, there are important differences between the sexes. Uh, but you ask, does anybody deny it? Yeah, I'm afraid a lot of people deny it. A lot of feminists deny these differences or minimize them or say they're utterly trivial. Um, and uh, I, I argue in this book, Sex Matters, that uh, they're not that trivial. They're actually somewhat significant. And even still, uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't worry that if we acknowledge them, that somehow women are going to be viewed as inferior. I think in some ways women are superior to men. You know, they're a lot more law-abiding, less violent, uh, <laughs> more attached. Uh, you know, they, they, they tend to live longer. They've got all kinds of advantages. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean, right, uh, you're not making an argument that societal norms, societal pressures don't play a role on their own, it seems to me you're just suggesting that the at least some modern feminists are undervaluing the role of the biological and over overvaluing the role of societal pressures and that sort of thing. Well, that's it. I mean, you, you have it exactly right. Look, of course, culture matters. Uh, culture matters tremendously. That's why, you know, people in Tibet behave differently from people in uh, New Orleans. Um, of course, uh, but there are certain universals that you find in uh, behavior between the sexes that are global. And when you see traits, for example, that are that are, that show up everywhere around the world, in every culture, in every time that we can that we know about, um, for example, that men tend to be more promiscuous sexually than women, um, and women tend to be more uh, oriented toward longer-term relationships and monogamy. Um, when you find that universally, you begin to think, you know, maybe it isn't cultural. Maybe it's sort of inbred. Similarly, when you see traits that show up in the first days of infancy, the first days of life, um, and these are consistent across time and culture, uh, for example, that um, little baby girls, infant girls, uh, will be more responsive to the sound of a human voice than infant boys. Um, that uh, they seem to prefer at, from very young ages different kinds of toys, um, that they have different sensitivity to light and sound. If these things show up so early, it's hard to argue that they are culturally constructed. Right. Yeah, I wonder if part of the issue or part of the problem is that when modern feminism was being born, that the state of the research on this is it wasn't nearly as good. And we've learned so much with evolutionary psychology and biology and that sort of thing that just the, the people who started this really just haven't been able to reform their views in light of new evidence, which, of course, is always difficult for human beings to do. It is hard. I agree. And but that's one of the reasons I wrote Sex Matters so, is that so that people can take a new look, a fresh look and say, you know, some of these um, some of these ideas are, are have really been supplanted by science. Um, you know, there's a there's a prejudice that some people have that says, you know, that that some Republicans, for example, and conservatives are anti-science because they engage in denial about climate change. And um, I would say that that's right. Some people are resistant to the plain facts and, and try to deny them. And, and that's silly. And you can disagree, obviously, about what choices we should make, what political actions should follow from the fact of climate change. But I think it's silly to argue that it's not a fact and it's outdated. We, we have the evidence. Well, similarly, with sex differences, you find it flips. There, Conservatives, Republicans are much more likely to be aware of the science and not to deny the science about sex differences. And people on the left tend to be very resistant and don't want to admit that, you know, that this is this is pretty well settled at this point, that sex differences are real. I mentioned in the book that, you know, there are whole journals devoted to studying sex differences in biology because it's incredibly important for, for medicine, among other things. Um, you have to know that men and women respond differently to different medications, for example. And it's not just based on body size either. It's based on the different biology, um, the, the hormones and, and so on and so forth of men and women. 
So, um, so these things are, um, are important and it's important not to deny them. Yeah, absolutely. It's always frustrated me that, and I'm sure you've heard the old line that uh, reality has a liberal bias and that, that drives me nuts because it's not about ideology at all. This is one of the few things that's absolutely bipartisan. Yes, it is. I mean, we all have our priors and we, we look for evidence that supports our pre-existing assumptions and we tend to discount evidence that challenges it. No, definitely. Challenges them. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is this notion is it taken from the Marxist literature of false consciousness. Uh, I really I think it's really mm. interesting. Can you talk a little bit about how that's been used by the feminist movement? Sure. So um, this idea of false consciousness, originally a Marxist concept, um, was the response that Marxists had to the fact that not all of the proletariat were um, revolutionary. And um, they attributed this to their false consciousness, that is, that they did not recognize their own best interests and that they had to be, you know, they had to be taught and led um, to recognize that they were part of a class and that they needed to um, to eschew the other attachments that they might have in their lives, like to their families or to their countries um, and recognize themselves instead as members of a class worldwide, the worldwide workers. Right. And um, and women, uh, the, the women's movement of the 1960s and 70s um, was very tied in with the New Left and, and with Marxism. It was very in, heavily influenced by Marx and Freud. And um, and so they adopted this idea of, um, of false consciousness as well. And they decided that the reason that women were not up in arms about their status as an oppressed class um, was that they too had false consciousness that they might have thought they were happy and fulfilled, but they just had to be, it had to be explained to them. They had to have their consciousness, consciousness raised. And so there were consciousness raising groups in the seventies where women would, they were also called bitch sessions (laughs) where women would sit around and talk about all the things that they were dissatisfied with, with their husbands and their children and their lives and whatever. And um, this was a way of uh, encouraging women to see themselves as part of an oppressed class. Well, you know, it's interesting to me because it it seems like, well, from one one hand, this is a really frustrating, fascinating concept, but it's also really frustrating because it's, in a sense, almost unfalsifiable, which I don't know that it's very useful (laughs) in that way. But but then it also occurred to me that if feminists are, you know, many modern feminists are making these arguments that, you know, women uh, should be as aggressive as men are in, in every way and that work outside of the home is just more fulfilling, is of a higher level than being just a housewife, you could almost say that they're sort of trying to implant their own false consciousness in the women. I couldn't have said it better. You're absolutely right. Um, they, um, they, were, they had their own view about the proper life of a woman. Um, I, I quote um, Simone de Beauvoir, the frame, famous French feminist, um, who said, among other things, a woman, uh, one is not born, but is made a woman, for example. And uh, this, that was the sort of the root of the whole cultural construction of gender idea. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they, they wanted women to have lives that looked much more like men's lives. And um, they, they insisted that it was, it was stultifying to raise children. And honestly, um, my view is, First of all, they, they um, devalued one of the most fulfilling parts of life, in my judgment. I have had a full career and I have had a full family life. And I can testify that as much as I have been so fortunate to have a job and a work that, that is uh, fulfilling and that's gratifying and, so, and stimulating and all of that, um, it, isn't, it can't hold a candle to the joy of raising my three sons. Um, that was the great pleasure of my life. And uh, so the, the, to, to attempt to diminish that side of life and to say, oh, just a housewife and so on is, first of all, un, um, unjust and, uh, and not true for the way a lot of women feel uh, that it's, we find it a, a tremendously rewarding part of life, maybe the most, re- most rewarding uh, part of life. But the other thing is, of course, that, you know, it, it, um, it leaves no room for individual choice. Simone de Beauvoir said um, 
that women should not be given the choice of being mothers or full-time mothers or homemakers for you know which many women like to do for some period of their lives in any event not all of it because we're fortunate to live long lives now uh, and there's time enough for everything but um, but she she wanted to say that she was, she did say too many women will take this choice if it's offered to them so we so no one should have this this opportunity or this choice talk about trying to limit women's options. I mean, she, she and, uh, and other feminists were, were open about it. But now it seems to me, at least there's a, a new, I don't know if it's exactly a third wave, but a different type of feminist that at least I see emerging a little bit. Um, like, for instance, I think of Sheryl Sandberg, uh, CEO of Facebook, and that argument that women can't have it all, that you, can, that you don't have to make a choice. And, and it, I wonder if that isn't sort of fundamentally wrong-headed or just in a way telling women that, well, if you don't have it all, then there's some failing in you or something like that. I do think that there's a tremendous amount of pressure on women. And I've seen it with young women in particular who always ask me, you know, how do you do that, you know, professional and family balance? How does one do it? They feel so much pressure to, um, to excel in every way. And, um, and to be the superwoman, um, and I, I do think that's kind of a burden for for some women. Um, but I also think the uh, the old pithy saying is basically right, which is you can have it all, just not all at once. And um, I think that's pretty um, accurate for people in first world countries who are fortunate enough. If you get married, that's very critical critical because the job of taking care of children does require two. And uh, if you attempt to do it all by yourself, it's, it's impossible. I and mean, a woman cannot, um, can, it, uh, I shouldn't say it's impossible. There are plenty of single mothers who do a fine job, but they kill themselves in the process. And uh, that shouldn't be the model either. Um, and in many cases, when women attempt to, to uh, in, in very many cases, when women attempt to do it all by themselves, um, the children do suffer. So, um, but, but, um, but people, the, the, the other thing I want to stress is that, so there's all this pressure to have it all, to do it all, blah, blah. And then there's also this, um, this sense that it's all about me. You know, I want, it's the list of I want, you know, I want a fulfilling career and a great husband and, you know, 2.3 children. I want, I want, I want. And I want to have it all. And, you know, I think we'd be better people if we focused a little bit more on service and on the joys of giving to others um, rather than having. Because uh, there's tremendous, tremendous joy and gratification to be had in being the one who gives. And, um, and I think we've gotten away from that to a large degree. I mean, family life does involve sacrifice. It does involve putting others before yourself. And um, for men and women, by the way, I mean, my husband, for example, you know, worked harder than um, than he would have if he hadn't had a wife and children. Um, and that's typical. You find that married men with kids tend to work harder, uh, longer hours. They tend to be more ambitious um, than men who aren't married or who are divorced. And it's very, um, it's very interesting. There's something about the, the responsibility of caring for others that spurs men to, uh, to excel at work. And, um, but they pay a price. They, they lose something. There are trade-offs. They lose leisure time. They lose uh, maybe a little peace of mind under the stress of having to, um, having to bring home the bacon um, or the woman in the, if, if it's the case that the, the couple, you know, reverses the traditional roles. And I know couples who do where it's the, it's the wife who has, is the main breadwinner and the husband who's the main caretaker. And that's fine too. Um, but in any event, um, people who focus on giving rather than having, I think are more likely actually ironically to be happy. Well, you know, and it, it seems to me, it, it occurs to me, and you're, you're saying that, that that's sort of the, the dark side of the many uh, individualistic revolutions of the 60s and the 70s. And certainly, you know, on the positive side, we saw great gains in equality, not just for women, but for minorities and so forth. But 
that 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 reverse side of it is it seems like we've lost that much of that community spirit and that sort of the sort of bonding together type of thing and and that I don't know that we have a really good come up with a really good answer to that as a society yet. I completely yes, I endorse that. Look, I mean, one of the things that the feminist movement did was, um, as I say, it joined with the sexual revolution and it it um, made war on the idea of the nuclear family. Um, I quote Susan Bluti, a famous uh, feminist who wrote a book called Backlash, and she said that uh, that no woman can hear the sound or no feminist can't remember how she put it exactly, but you know can hear the sound of wedding bells without sadness. Well. <laughs> You know, wow. that's um, that's actually not true. Um, women like to get married. They like the security that marriage affords. Um, but we have moved away from the marriage norm in en masse. And um, sadly, it's, it hasn't affected all, um, as, all levels of American society the same way. Among college-educated people, um, they still tend to follow the old script of you know, you finish your education, then you get married, and then you have babies in that order. And um, they tend to stay married, and they tend only about 9% of college-educated women have babies without um, being married. Whereas the rates among high school dropouts and those who have lesser education is extremely high, you know, over 50%. Um, have babies before they're married and um, or never marry. And um, this is this is contributing to, first of all, a lot of unnecessary human uh, misery on the part of children. But it's also um, it's also contributing to the widening um, uh, inequality in our society. Uh, It is uh, it's worrisome uh, because people, you know, people who are concerned about rising inequality tend to focus so much on factory jobs that are going overseas or other factors. Um, but if you just look at it through the lens of uh, who's married and who isn't, you can see a vast difference. Um, you will see that, um, for example, people who follow the life script that I just mentioned of getting married, uh, finishing their education, getting married and getting, uh, getting a job, um, any job, they, their chances of living in poverty are infinitesimal, uh, whereas having a child before getting married is a, a very good route to a life of poverty. So this is incredibly important. Well, you know, the response to this, at least from what I've heard on the left, is, okay, that's true, and the solution to this is doing a much better job of providing birth control to poor women, because that, that's a real issue. Well, what do you think about that response? Yeah, they've been saying that for decades. Um, and uh, the, the, here's a, another reality that they don't want to grapple with, which is that when single women have babies without husbands, they, they know all about birth control. They want those babies. They, they want someone to love uh, and to love them. And uh, they know all about birth control. It's not a lack of birth control. Not only that, birth control is um, is very inexpensive. Um, condoms are cheap. The, you know, lots of methods of birth control are cheap. Uh, but what you find when you look at people who've had children out of wedlock is that they they did it knowingly uh, or with, let us say, um, uh, a certain casualness about birth control because they weren't too sour on the idea of of uh, actually becoming pregnant. So, um, so there's, you know, that's, that's something to grapple with. And, uh, you know, people who um, have had difficult childhoods themselves and didn't get enough love sometimes um, think that the solution is to have a baby of their own, but it's not a good solution. So in a way, it sounds like this is, uh, uh, there, a lot of people are proposing a, a technological solution to a cultural problem. Exactly. Yeah, which exactly. isn't going to work out. Yeah, and, and, the- uh, and we've made, yeah, we, we've made birth control and birth uh, birth control widely available. We've made uh, we've made birth uh, sex education universal, um, and uh, it hasn't had the effect that uh, the left claimed for it. Well, you know, in, in the book, also, I wanted to mention this really surprised me. I always thought. 
that the the sexual revolution of the sixties was driven by more than anything else by the uh, the birth control pill, which came out in nineteen sixty. But there's a part of your book where you make a, a to me a fairly convincing argument that the importance of the pill in all of this has actually been overstated. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's interesting. There were um, I'm not downplaying the importance of technology in affecting culture. Um, so, for example, I do mention that the um, invention of or the wide availability of the automobile arguably spurred our first sexual revolution in America that happened in the teens and 1920s, because young people could meet in a closed car and be out of the view of chaperones or parents or anyone else. So, um, so there was a little mini sexual revolution in the 1920s that arguably was affected by that. Uh, by that technological change. Um, but there were other things going on in society as well. And, um, and I point out that, um, that you can see um, the changes in sexual behavior, at least based on um, uh, unwed births and other in indexes um, that, uh, that predated the arrival of the birth control pill. And by the way, when the birth control pill arrived it, it, for a while after its introduction, it was um, it was expensive. It was hard to get without a doctor's. You, you needed a doctor's prescription, and many doctors would not prescribe it for women who weren't married. Um, and um, so it was actually not widely used for some time after its introduction. Um, there were other methods of birth control uh, that were uh, more widely used, uh, but it was really a change in mores um, that. Uh, that propelled the, the search for contraception rather, I think, than the other way around. Right. And you've mentioned divorce uh, a couple of times. I wanted to ask you about that because, of course, since really, I guess, the early 70s, we've seen a major change in divorce law in the United States, uh, the rise of no-fault divorces particularly. And uh, the typical feminist response is, well, this is a really good thing because there were so many women who were in you know, abusive, oppressive marriages that were almost like, in a way, domestic prison sentences. And this gave them the opportunity to get out of these horrible situations. Uh, how, how do you, I mean, is there, is there something to that? What do you think about that? I do think there's something to it. Um, but I also would stress that there are no, as the, as the economists teach us, there are no choices, only trade-offs. So while it's true that, that easier divorce um, freed women, freed some percentage of unhappy women from um, very destructive marriages, made it easier to escape, um, it, uh, it also um, weakened the bonds of a lot of marriages, a lot of um, marriages that were not so unhappy. Um, and I cite the data in the book about the fact that a significant percentage of divorces happen in relationships where there is no, you know, severe conflict, uh, but simply uh, people saying, well, they think they might be happier or they meet someone new or, um, you know, they fall in love with someone else, et cetera. And um, I cite data showing that um, when you compare couples who divorce, unhappy couples who divorced, with unhappy couples who decided to stay together and work on their problems, um, the uh, the unhappy couples who divorced were less happy five years later than the unhappy couples who decided to stay and work it out. And uh, I think there's been um, the, the the divorce has actually been extremely destructive uh, for children and for um, and for adults. Uh, it's 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 way too common. Uh, obviously, it should be a, an option for people who are in abusive or really destructive relationships, uh, and especially where there are no children involved. But, um, but you know, the, the widespread, um, uh, let's say, um, acceptance of divorce or, um, you know, uh, destigmatizing of divorce um, has had some bad consequences as well as some good ones. Yeah. Uh I also wanted to ask you, and you mentioned this again a, a few times, uh, abortion, which obviously has to play a, a major role in any book about modern feminism. And my sense of what 
sort of the modern feminist position is, uh, so to speak, is that it's kind of a my body, my choice. And it seems to me at least most mainstream feminists would say that abortion should be, as the phrase goes, safe, legal and rare. And okay, I'm a man. And so I feel really uncomfortable telling women what they can do with their bodies. And, And those two slogans to me, Make a lot of make a lot of sense. I find myself agreeing with them, and I was wondering what you think about those those slogans or positions or whatever you want to call them. Mm. Well, the safe, legal, and rare wording actually came from Bill Clinton um, when he was triangulating and trying to put himself sort right. of to the right of his party, which had become you know full on abortion rights party. Um, and so when he said rare, that was um, that was pretty conservative for a Democrat, you know, mm-hmm. to even suggest that abortion should be should be rare or shouldn't be a commonplace. Um, but um, but I, I don't find that most feminists use that word rare. I think they they tend to view it as a positive good to, to quote John C. Calhoun on the subject of slavery. Um, they they don't they don't say rare. They, they just say it's my body, my choice. And uh uh, one thing that I do find troublesome is that, many, among many other things, um, is that they always stress that it's such a difficult decision. It's a difficult decision, but women should be should be the ones uh, to make it. Well, first of all, if if it's not a human being that you are terminating, if it's just a clump of cells, then why is it such a difficult decision? Um, and uh, and furthermore, women do you know women are except for those women who are raped, um, which are fewer than 1% of abortions yearly, um, women already have a choice. They have a choice to uh, prevent pregnancy uh, um, if they're not ready uh, to be mothers. And uh, properly used, birth control is almost 100% uh, effective. And, uh, And so... I, I find that. Um, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just I'm wondering. I guess maybe maybe I've just led too much of a sheltered life here. But I, is it is it the case that there are a significant number of of feminists who have no problem with with abortion as a I mean you know abortion as essentially a form of birth control. I'm, I mean I'm not talking about morning after pills or anything like that. But you know fairly long on that that's a that's a fairly uncontroversial uh, uh, position because that just really kind of blows my mind a little bit, I guess. Well, look, in, in, here's what they would say. They would say, obviously, nobody wants to go through an abortion. It's a it's a surgical procedure. It's not exactly pleasant for the woman who's undergoing it. She's there. Are, uh, you know, it's physically painful. Um, and uh, there's a lot of bleeding involved and cramping, and then there's the emotional toll that it takes because every woman who has an abortion pretty much is aware that this is her child. And, uh, and so when you go from being pregnant to unpregnant, you know, you may feel a sense of relief, but there's also some grief and, and sense of loss that goes along with it, even, I think, among the most pro-choice women. Um, so they would say nobody wants to go through an abortion, but they would say um, birth control fails, uh, people are raped, um, and so uh, it it has to be uh, it has to be the backup. But that so that would be how they would phrase it. But when they when they do things like say you know shout your abortion um, or, or keep your rosaries off my ovaries or other things that you've seen at the women's marches and so forth. Um, You do get a sense that they have this kind of um, callous attitude toward what abortion is. Uh, I I see that a lot. I guess they would argue in response to that, that they're trying to, uh, they're trying to sort of destigmatize it, which is different from actually encouraging it as as a positive good as some you know certainly some might argue that and and that because women yeah. right they're under so much pressure and yeah, strain no, I, I i think so i think they would probably phrase it that way um but in the process of doing that in the process of destigmatizing it they've wound up tying themselves in knots they they have wound up taking positions that are so dishonest 
for example, there was a big debate in the 1990s about partial birth abortion. And the feminists were so dishonest. I mean, first they claimed when when uh, pro-life forces began to elevate this topic and say that it should be outlawed, the practice of partial birth abortion, which involves uh, usually uh, second and third trimester uh, fetuses and involves dilating the cervix with special drugs over a course of about three days. And then the woman is brought into the abortion clinic and she, uh, the baby is delivered um, uh, by breech delivery up to the head. Uh, while the head is still in the womb, the doctor um, places, a, you know, takes a scissors and makes a hole in the baby's skull and then attaches a hose and suctions out the baby's brain and then pulls the rest of the head out of the birth canal. And um, this is a horrifying, horrifying procedure. Um, and um, so when, it, when efforts were made to ban it as being too close to infanticide, um, first, the... Um, Feminists said there was no such thing. There was no such thing as this procedure. Well, then, you know, it transpired that there was indeed such a procedure. So that was not true. So then they said, well, the baby is already dead by the time it's delivered because of the anesthesia that is administered to the mother. Well, that turned out to be another lie. In point of fact, the American College of Anesthesiologists issued statements saying, no, no, that's not true. Administering anesthesia to a pregnant woman does not kill the fetus. Because there are all these women who were scheduled to have other kinds of, you know, pregnant women who were scheduled to have other kinds of surgeries who were panicked at the thought that um, right. the, the anesthesia would kill their unborn child. So the, the anesthesiologist said, no, no, that's not true. Okay, so they backed off that one. And then they began the, oh, it's incredibly rare um, argument. And again, that wasn't true either. So, um, you know, they, they, um, they do not grapple with the reality of what's happening here. And they try to mislead uh, the public about the nature of abortion and, and what happens and about the facts. And uh, I, I think that's uh, regrettable, let's say. Before we move off of, of abortion, I wanted to ask you, you know, I, I said at one point, as a man, I feel uncomfortable about holding forth on this. And of course, that's another thing sometimes you'll hear from from uh, from some, I guess, modern feminists that, well, all these laws are passed by men and men really don't have, a, in a sense, a right to hold forth and make these decisions for, for women. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, there, there are pro-choice men, just like there are pro-life men, and um, the, the male-female difference is not the significant one here. It's a difference of philosophy. Um, there are lots and lots of women are um, pro-life um, as well as pro-choice. It's not that that's not the way the, the argument cuts. It doesn't cut by sex. It cuts by philosophy and whether you think uh, that it's the taking of a human life that is, that is immoral or, or not. And, um, and so it really shouldn't matter what you're sex is, it's, it's how you view um, this particular issue. I, I'm highly aware that, I mean, we're not, that's not the right way to put it, but um, I, I used to stress um, when I was discussing this issue in my syndicated column that, uh, that I, I was pro-woman from the moment of conception to the moment of natural death. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, like, I, like, that way. I like that formulation. Uh, you know, in, in in Sex Matters, you also write about what you call uh, the campus rape industrial complex. And I'm sure you know, of course you know, it's often said that one in five women on college campuses have experienced uh, some form of sexual assault. And, and if that's correct, I mean, that suggests to me that we have a huge problem and that it does require kind of a industrial complex to, to deal with. But, but, but you sort of take issue with this in the book, correct? Absolutely. Um, I, I note that there's a lot of really bad behavior going on on college campuses. I am arguing for a return to a much saner and more humane way of men and women meeting, dating, and forming relationships uh, in college and, uh, and in life. 
than we currently have. I think the hookup culture is uh, demeaning and dehumanizing and uh, and just terrible. But um, but that said, and and even acknowledging that there's a lot of bad behavior that goes on. Um, it is it is completely wrong to say that one in five women suffers sexual assault. That requires uh, torturing the data to the point where you know a grope or a uh, or or an unwanted kiss counts as sexual assault. And I just don't think of it that way. And I think most um, people, when you say sexual assault, they think rape, right? right. Um, but uh, but that's not what these data are. That's not the way these data are compiled. When you look at the studies uh, upon which that one in five statistic uh, arises, you find that, that those are the kinds of things that have to get classified as sexual assault in order to arrive at that one in five figure. So it's highly misleading. So the, you also you mentioned the hookup culture. Now, that to me just seems so incredibly Bizarre. I mean, I I came of age well well before that, and it just seems like such a such an awful dehumanizing sort of thing to go through. And I'm so glad that I grew up before that actually was a thing. I agree, uh, and I think the kids agree. They know something's badly wrong, and uh, some of them are some of them are really perspicacious and understand exactly what went wrong, and uh, and are trying to. Um, trying to return to a more um, uh, sensitive and humane kind of society. There, there were, uh, there are students against, um, what was it? Students against pornography at Yale or something like that, who objected to um, sex week at Yale, which is quite right. typical. You find it at a lot of colleges and uh, there are some students who are rebelling and saying, look, this is, this is not a good way to behave. This is not a good way, a good ethic to encourage. Um, it, it creates misunderstandings. It, 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 people get their feelings hurt, sometimes much worse. Um, and um, look, the hookup culture is, is something that could have been designed by horny 13-year-old boys. <laughs> um, but, and they would have thought, great, you mean you go to a party and everybody gets drunk, especially the women, um, and then you pair off and go to your dorm room and get it on. That's that's terrific. Well, of course, for women, it's not so terrific. Um, and the women are the ones, overwhelmingly, who complain about sexual assault. And by the way, um, uh, the overwhelming majority of sexual assaults happen as a consequence of uh, that, not as a consequence, but but uh, when large amounts of liquor are consumed. Um, so this this social pattern of getting very drunk and then pairing off with people you hardly know or don't even know um, is a perfect laboratory experiment for how to create the environment for for um, very very bad sex and for yeah. sexual assault. Yeah. Well, and I think that's of a piece with the, the the pornification of culture as well. I mean, when I was growing up. Porn was available in, you know, adult bookstores, these seedy places that were located in bad parts mm -hmm. of town and all that. But now it's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's just everywhere. And, and I mean, it seems like it's just so uh, so degrading. I mean, there's more and more research coming out about how the, the awful effects on, on, on loving relationships and so forth. And just uh, just seems like a truly awful thing. It is. And, and it's, you know, at one, I considered putting a chapter in my book about it, but the topic is so disgusting that I yeah. actually couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, but it really is um, a poison that has infected our culture. And um, I, I think we have to get serious about uh, curbing it somehow. It is um, it, it does destroy many relationships. It, it, it uh, coarsens our sensibilities it gives men the wrong ideas about what women want and are like, and uh, and it it's utterly dehumanizing. It reduces people to body parts um, when love is the great glue that holds men and women together, and uh, and and pornography is the great antagonist of love. Well, and I think a lot of people who don't, who are lucky enough not to have any extensive experience or know what's going on in that world, when you say degrading, I mean, some, so much of what's considered mainstream in pornography is just, it is just horrific, at least as far as I'm concerned, especially to women. And just when I think about young men being raised on a, on a steady diet of that, that, that what that must do to their brains is just, it just, 
it really shocks and startles and disgusts me. Me too. And, you know, there was a movement among certain feminists uh, to, there was a big anti-porn crusade that um, for a while there looked like it might link um, feminists with uh, conservative Christians uh, to, uh, to battle uh, the, the the scourge of pornography. But um, a lot of other feminists took the view that, uh, that they, you know, they were kind of free speech absolutists and, um, and they did not want to join with uh, certainly with uh, conservative Christians and uh, felt that the, the anti-porn feminists were being co-opted. And so that was a big battle that, uh, that happened in the seventies and eighties. But I'm sympathetic to efforts to curb porn, whatever province they come from. Yeah. Well, you know, and there are some, of course, you know, there, there are some feminists who make this, uh, this kind of pro porn female empowerment type of argument. To me, that is so, so divorced from the reality of what pornography is that it's just, that it's just uh, ridiculous, actually. You know, I agree. I agree. Uh, Yep. I want to ask you a little bit about gender identity too, because it seems to me that's become maybe the most recent kind of cultural battleground here. And uh, so here's my understanding of it, that gender isn't a choice of these two boxes, male or female. There's sort of a continuum, if you will. And and I guess until fairly recently, people who didn't identify entirely as male or female, they were basically forced into one of these two boxes. And to me, once I accept that, it follows that uh, accepting, really even embracing more fluid gender identities is a, is a good, rational, scientific type of thing. But uh, when, when you talk about it in this book, though, you, you argue that society has been, uh, the word you use is reckless in accepting these gender differences. And I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit. Yes. Um, well, what I think is, so you said, um, we're beginning to learn that gender fluidity is a real thing and that um, there isn't, there aren't two sexes. There are many sexes or many sexual identities. This is all speculative. There's no evidence for this yet. Um, now it may be true, but it may not be. Um, it's, it's guess, it's a guesswork. Um, and um, I, I find, look, if adults, want to change their bodies and or you know their behavior and and dress or act or uh get surgery and and uh hormone injections and so forth to change their perceived sexual identity i i would say by the way that they never really a man cannot become a woman and vice versa uh but that's because as i mentioned at the start of our conversation the every single cell of our bodies is sexualized to some degree and uh so it, I don't think it's possible to change your sex, but um, it is certainly possible to make yourself into a, a, a passable image of the other sex through surgery and hormones. Um, and look, I'm for freedom. I think that if adults want to do that, if they think it will make them happy, they are certainly free to do with their bodies and their lives what they wish. What worries me is the trend to do this to children uh, because we are in totally uncharted territory here. We have no idea whether um, trans identities are a real thing or just something that has been imagined. Um, And we have no idea, uh, and children are not in a position to make life altering decisions for themselves of the most dramatic kind that include inevitably sterility um, because when you change from one sex to the other uh, you uh, you're, you become sterile um, and drastic surgery and drastic psychological uh, effects of taking these hormone suppressing medications that uh, that is now considered um, now considered normal in certain circles. Um, I'm worried about this because um, we don't, we don't have, we don't have um, any sense that, you know, of, of, wait a minute, slow down. Children go through stages, you know, and I talk in the book about how when I was a little girl, I was a bit of a tomboy and I wanted to be, I had two older brothers 
And all the toys that we played with in our house tended to be boy toys, trucks and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And I liked playing with all those toys, probably because those were the available toys. (laughs) Um, And also I liked to climb trees and play outside and get dirty and all that. And so, um, but, and I, oh, and I wanted all of my friends to call me Timmy. I wanted to be a boy. And, um, I shudder to think what would have happened. I mean, it was a stage. I went through it. I came out the other end. I'm very happy being female. Um, I shudder to think what would have happened to a little girl like me today. Would, would the parents be told, look, you know, you've got to ratify her desire to be a boy. You're, you can do severe psychological damage to her if you deny that she's a boy. Um, you know, she, she needs to start getting hormone suppressing shots so that she won't go through puberty. Um, this is, I think this is really dangerous and crazy. Um, you know, kids are, they go through stages. They don't know themselves yet. The, the experience that we've had with kids who have gender identity or dis, dis, disorder or gender dysphoria, they keep changing what they call it in the psychological literature. But the evidence is, is there that, that the overwhelming majority of children who express these feelings outgrow them, especially after they go through puberty. Um, but if we're now going to be giving these kids hormone suppression and um, not allowing them to go through natural puberty, uh, it, it, this is, this is um, playing with right. human lives in a way that I regard as highly irresponsible. Well, and again, it seems like part of a larger cultural trend that we've become much less of a culture of, of, of restraint and caution and much more of a kind of, if it feels right, do it and do it right away, basically. And it's this empire of feelings. You know, feelings are important, of course, in our lives, but we cannot let them reign. Um, we have to use our rational brains, too. And, um, you know, because you may feel a certain way doesn't make it more authentic than what you think. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I know we're running a little short on time. But I have one final question for you. Uh, you know, it seems to me that this is, at least I feel this is very much a, a man's world still. I think men have it much easier than men, especially men who are, you know, reasonably well-off, educated, white males like, like, like me, for example. And so I'm wondering, how do we acknowledge uh, that we still need to do some work on gender issues, inequality issues, within, without falling into what you see as these errors of modern feminism? I and mean, what, what's the way forward, do you think? Well, I think we need to have a much greater focus on, um, on manners and on teaching men what it means to be a good man. Um, I cite in the book the word, uh, I'm Jewish, and I cite in the book the Yiddish word mensch. Mm-hmm. Mensch literally means man. But it doesn't mean that in the Jewish tradition. It means someone who is upright, honest, responsible. Um, when you say he's a real mensch, you mean he's, he's a generous, well-balanced, good person. And that's what we need to strive for for both sexes. And we need to recognize that men don't profit at the expense of women and women don't profit at the expense of men. We thrive best when we serve one another. And uh, we're happiest when we are um, respectful of one another. One of the really terrible consequences of um, the feminist fury toward men is that there's been a backlash against women on the part of men, which you see in, you know, uh, uh, the form of the manosphere online where men uh, some some angry young men apparently go to these websites that encourage them to be cruel and heartless toward women on the grounds that women like that better and so on and so forth. And um, and so we need a great deal of relearning of what it means to respect one another completely and uh, with all of our differences. Amen. It's, of course, it's a big job, but I absolutely agree with that. And with that, we will close. Uh, Mona Charon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, before you go, I've got a weird political fact of the week for you. But real quick before I get to that, I want to thank everyone who's subscribed to the show so far. And if you haven't subscribed yet, I hope you will. It really does help. Also, last week we got our first iTunes review. 
Now it looks kind of lonely there all by itself. So if you could add your own to go along with it, that would be great. Uh, that way, when someone comes across the show on iTunes, they'll be able to see what other people think. And also, you know, Apple's ways are very mysterious, but it's we're fairly certain that reviews are very helpful in getting the word out, getting the show promoted to more iTunes type folks. Uh, another thing that helps out a lot is sharing the, the show. So if you know of anyone you think might enjoy it, I hope you'll let them know about it. Uh, if you could post about the show on social media and so on, that would be great. I would really appreciate it. And hey, if you've got a question, comment, future guest suggestion, or anything else, you can reach me at mike at politicsplus.us. And of course, the show's website, it's politicsplus.us. Okay, now for my weird political fact of the week. James Madison, father of the Constitution and fourth U.S. president, he was, of course, a huge intellect. But he was also a very tiny guy. He's the smallest U.S. president, standing only five feet, four inches tall, and weighing, by most estimates, only around 100 pounds. Wow. There you go. Anyway, I'll be back with a new interview next week. I hope you'll join me.